Baptist Broadcasting. You're tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching here on YouTube, thank you for tuning in. Please click that subscribe button. It's that red button to the bottom right of the screen. And the bell for continued notifications. Biblicism. What is Biblicism? Actually, what I want to do is is go through five reasons Biblicism is bad. Not a good thing at all. Even though it sounds good, uh, it's got this pious ring to it because the, the whole idea with Biblicism is, is you know, we, we stick to Scripture and nothing else. And so on the surface level, that sounds very attractive and very entertaining to those who love God and his word. Biblicism has been expressed in several different ways in, uh, or throughout history, and, and one of the most popular ways to express it today, and, and this is a way that probably most of you will, will have had experience with, is uh, the expression, we have no creed but the Bible. And the idea here is is that there is only there there is only a, it's not so much that scripture is the ultimate or the highest authority in faith and life. It is the case that scripture is the only authority in matters of faith and life. That there really is no such thing as as subordinate authorities uh, that would help us better understand what scripture says. And so, things like creeds and confessions of faith. Um, uh, sometimes on the extreme end of things, commentaries are, are you know, written off as 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 that which is is unnecessary for the believer to consult in order to gain a a, a better or more full understanding of the text of, of scripture. And so, um, really, in principle, that's that's all I'm able to say by way of definition. There's just so many different ways in which it manifests. And it has manifested throughout history that it's difficult to 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 give a, a really specific definition. And and part of the trouble with biblicism is that it's it's difficult to pin down. But I would say the principle of it is a denial of secondary uh, authorities, um, or what we might call uh, the denial of norma normata. Uh, that there is, that there are other norms in the Christian life which are nevertheless normed by the norming norm and that is or the unnormed norming norm and that is scripture itself so um you know and, and think think of it like this maybe if I could say that there are are five guys doing a Bible study and one of those men is leading the Bible study they're they're moving through a chapter in Jeremiah and uh the person leading the Bible study doesn't know what a part of that chapter means. And so he turns to his friends to the right and to the left and asks, guys, what do you think about this? Um, can you help me in terms of understanding the meaning of this text? And and essentially what he's doing there is they're, they're all recognizing that Scripture is the ultimate authority. Um, but at the same time, they're leaning on one another for help in understanding the scriptures. And so you, you have two things in play there. You have the Norman Normans, which is the scripture. It's the unnormed norming norm. 
It's the one that's not conditioned by anything else. It's not subject to anything else in terms of earthly authority. Uh, it is the norming norm, unnormed by creatures, right? So it's the ultimate rule, we would say. But at the same time, you have the group of men helping each other understand the scriptures, and that group of men helping each other to understand the scriptures would be called the norma normata, or they are the normed norms. They are uh, they are helping one another, and so to the extent that they help one another and inform one another, they are considered subordinate authorities, or norma normata, and they are subordinate authorities in the sense that they they have influence over one another, they have authority and accountability over one another, but at the same time, the ultimate authority to which they answer is the Word of God. Okay, so you have you have two uh, two authorities at play in that situation. You have the ultimate authority, and then you have the subordinate authority, Scripture, and then the five friends who are helping one another understand the Scriptures. And, and really, this works uh, not only with regard to other Christians that can act as norma normata or subordinate authorities that help us understand the text of scripture but it, it's also the case that confessions of faith creeds um commentaries and so on can also uh fill the fill the vacuum of that of that subordinate authority and so what the biblicist will do uh is reject any need and and, and again this is very this is very inconsistent of them to do because upon final analysis They'll always, they can't help it because they're creatures, and creatures can't help but appeal to other creatures in terms of consulting something like Scripture. Um, but what they will do is they'll reject that normata, that norma normata. Uh, they'll reject subordinate, all subordinate authorities in favor of really just them, themselves, and their Bibles. And uh, there are five reasons this is, this is dangerous, five reasons this is bad, and that's what I want to walk through today. Um, I'm going to go ahead and list out the five reasons, what they are, what I have prepared here uh, for us today, and then um, we'll go through each one of them individually. So the first reason that Biblicism is bad is that it generally rejects doctrinal accountability. It generally rejects doctrinal accountability. Number two, Biblicism usually transfers the sufficiency of Scripture, sufficiency being an attribute proper to Scripture. It transfers that sufficiency to the reader of Scripture, which we remember is continuing to be marred by a sin nature. Thirdly, Biblicism tends to view Scripture as a disordered compendium of various, sometimes unrelated, texts instead of viewing it as a unified whole. It tends to either explicitly view it as a, a disordered compendium of various unrelated texts, or it does so by way of implication. Fourthly, Biblicism often does not have a well-defined understanding of the purpose or the goal of Scripture, which has been set by God, the author of Scripture. Um, and then... Uh, uh, let's see. I'm uh, And then fifthly, Fifthly and lastly, Biblicism tends not to consider Scripture in relation to God, the world, or the piety of the reader. Uh, and we'll look at that one uh, if you're sitting there thinking, what in the world does he mean by that? We'll look at that more as when we, when we come to it. I don't know how long this is going to take to get through, but we will get through all of this in this one episode. So let's begin with number one. Biblicism generally rejects doctrinal accountability. You've probably been able to pick up on this in my description of Biblicism because the, the, the principle of Biblicism, remember, is, is really to reject 
uh, secondary authorities. It's to uh, reject secondary authorities in favor of the individual and his own intellectual prowess in relationship to the Bible. It's me, myself, and the Bible in my closet studying by myself without anyone else around me or influencing me. That's kind of the uh, the, 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 the principal trajectory of the Biblicist. Um, and because of that, uh, it's, it's often been said that Biblicism has been the hermeneutic or the, the interpretive approach of most heretics throughout church history. Two of them uh, seem relevant to mention, and that would be Arius. Um, the Arian heresy uh, involved a rejection or a denial of the deity of Christ. Jesus is not, cons uh, or the Son, is not consubstantial with the Father in terms of the divine essence or substance, and so uh, Jesus is a uh, is a created uh, being, uh, substantially and essentially distinct from the Father, and is thus lesser than. And uh, the same is true with regard to the Holy Spirit, which is relegated to, uh, to more of a force um, or an expression of divine power. And, um, and, and that shows up again in another heretic later on, albeit, you know, with some differences. It shows up in uh, uh, Faustus Sostinus, uh, who was a Neo-Arian, we might be able to say, and, um, and both of these men, uh, while they were promoting their heresies, were leaning heavily, we might say, on Scripture. Uh, and their claims were that Scripture teaches this, not this received opinion. Um, and and there, there was a kind of uh, uh, biblicism there in the sense that in the case of someone like Arius— Arius was willing to stand against his friends and 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 uh, uh, and those who would hold him accountable in order to promote his heresy. And the the uh, the implication there is, of course, that that Arius was was taking the Bible and he was reading the Bible and he was drawing his own conclusions from the text of Scripture, and he was doing so without. God's ordained means of doctrinal accountability. So he freed himself from any accountability structure uh, that was made available to him uh, during the fourth century and instead decided to promote uh, a heresy uh, which he concluded from his own uh, from his own research, uh, from his own efforts to interpret the scripture. And of course, his assumption is, well, I've got the spirit of God in me. I'm a I'm a I'm a believer. Um, I I I I obey God and so on and so forth and so and so I have the ability to just interpret Scripture on my own. And of course, that was shown to be false as his heresy progressed and he dug more. Uh, he entrenched himself further into his position. Uh, a similar thing happens with uh, Sosinus or Fasta Sosinus. Uh, who is a neo-Arian? He also denied the um, uh, he also denied the um, uh, deity of Christ uh, or the consubstantiality of the Son with the Father. Uh, Alan Gomes, a his, uh, a uh, uh, historian um, at I believe uh, Talbot, uh, writes this about Sosinus. He says. He held to the absolute authority of Scripture, which he regarded as a revelation from God, 
necessary for the salvation of human beings, and the source on which Christian doctrine must be built. And if you were to ask uh, any two Christians today whether or not they believe that Scripture is uh, the source of Christian doctrine, or doctrine that is unique and distinct to Christianity, they would give you a hearty yes and amen. And so, Sassen has had this kind of view, a high view of Scripture. The problem, however, was the fact that he was approaching Scripture without the ordinary means which God has ordained for us to approach Scripture with. Um, and so he was he was approaching Scripture by himself, trusting in himself. There was an arrogance or a pride behind the way in which he approached the Bible, and he came away with a damning heresy, namely that our Lord is not God. Um, Sosinus himself writes, for that distinction, one essence and three persons, right, which is the, the orthodox formulae uh, or formula of the, of the Holy Trinity, just basically summarized, he says that distinction, one essence, three persons, or or one in essence, three in persons, is never found in the Holy Scriptures and clearly is at odds with most certain reason and truth. And so what he's saying there is, I can't find this language in Scripture, so therefore I'm going to reject it. And what he ends up doing is he, he ends up rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity. He ends up rejecting... Uh, the hypostatic union, uh, the two natures uh, of Christ united in one person, um, he, he rejects that, uh, and and with it, an orthodox Christology and all the rest. By the time you get through with Sosinus, you, you, you realize that he has an entirely different version of Christianity altogether. By the way, both of those citations come out of a uh, an article called Faustus Sosinus's A Tract Concerning God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, um, and uh, that is by Alan W. Gomes, and, and really it's not by him, it's an uh, introduction and interaction with uh, Sosinus's article uh, or, or tract. Um, so that's the first thing. That's that's the first reason why biblicism gen why biblicism is wrong. It's dangerous. It generally rejects doctrinal accountability. We know that we need doctrinal accountability because we have a remaining sin nature that is prone to twisting uh, divine truth into our own image, and that's what ended up happening, of course, with with both Arius and Sosinus. The second reason why Biblicism is bad is that Biblicism transfers the sufficiency of Scripture to the reader of Scripture. And this accounts for some of the arrogance that we've alluded to already under point, point number one. Why would a person want to remove themselves from doctrinal accountability? Well, it would be the underlying assumption that because Scripture is sufficient, I must be sufficient as well. In other words, Scripture is sufficient, therefore I'm a sufficient interpreter of Scripture. It's a non-secular, it doesn't follow, but oftentimes the sufficiency of Scripture is confused with the interpretive prowess of the Bible reader, and what ends up happening is the attribute of scriptural sufficiency is is unlawfully transferred to the reader of Scripture. So the assumption is, if Scripture is sufficient, I myself am a sufficient interpreter. Um, now, if anyone came to you and said, 
I, because scripture is sufficient, I myself is, am a sufficient interpreter. You might say, whoa, 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 you need to, you need to cool your jets there. That's not a very humble expression. Um, it, it doesn't seem that there's much humility uh, that bears out in a statement like that. Um, and, and we might be able to say that really the only, <laughs> the only way we become good interpreters of well, we might say it this way, the, and, and this is kind of colloquial, so don't don't take this as a technical statement, but we are sufficient interpreters only when we realize that we are not sufficient interpreters, if that makes sense. In other words, the Bible reader, the Bible interpreter, is not going to come to Scripture and derive the meaning of Scripture to the fullest extent he could if he's coming to the text of Scripture thinking himself adequate. God... Uh, uh, God speaks and 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 relates to the humble, and um, he he opens the oracles and the meaning of the text to the humble, not to those who are built up and puffed up in their pride. Um, scripture itself witnesses against the wrongheaded assumption that we are somehow sufficient in ourselves to be uh, <clears throat> sufficient Bible interpreters. Uh, Romans three twenty three. You think about. Romans three twenty three, and uh, and the fact that we at present and, and and that's a text that's written and communicated to believers, we fall short of the glory of God. Now, if that's the case, if we fall short of the glory of God, uh, if we are imperfect, we have a, if we have a remaining sin nature, if we still sin, as First John tells us that we do, then wouldn't it be wise to surround ourselves with help. And indeed, that's what Proverbs eleven fourteen tells us to do. Um, and if we read Proverbs eleven fourteen with um, uh, with humility, I think we'll come away with a general principle of a need to understand ourselves not as sufficient Bible interpreters, but as those who need help in order to interpret the Bible rightly. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So in, re- in relation to the interpretation of the text of Scripture, um, if, if, I, if, I'm, if I have this kind of uh, arrogant idea that I am a perfect Bible interpreter or that I am a sufficient Bible interpreter, I'm going to fall, just like the heretics of old have. I'm going to fall. I'm going to draw conclusions that are more in line with my remaining sin nature than uh, in line with the true meaning and sense of the text. And so, therefore, there is a need for me to surround myself with a multitude of counselors. Sometimes those counselors are not uh, living persons. Sometimes they're commentaries. Sometimes they're uh, confessions of faith, um, creeds. Uh, They are the writings of Christians who have gone before us. They are... Uh, or they are a pastor or a friend in the church or so or someone like that. So uh, the second reason that biblicism is is bad, that biblicism is dangerous, is that biblicism, uh, I think inadvertently so most of the time, uh, and and it, and this is a very subtle thing, but it transfers an attribute of scripture, namely sufficiency to the reader. And, and that's a very dangerous thing. When we begin to think of ourselves as sufficient, uh, we then have a doctrinal reason or principle 
that excuses our arrogance. Think about that for a moment. We are, we are given license to arrogance the moment that we think of ourselves sufficient to interpret the Bible in ourselves. Thirdly, the third reason why, uh, why biblicism is bad. Biblicism tends to view Scripture as a disordered compendium of various, sometimes even unrelated texts. Um, and you, you, you will hear, uh, usually this happens in more nuanced discussions about what a particular passage means, um, but typically this happens within uh, biblicistic uh, kind of circles uh, where it is forbidden to go outside the immediate text in question in order to be informed by other texts in Scripture. Um, in the Second London Confession of Faith, uh, we are told, um, and, and I believe this, this occurs in chapter 1, we're told that, um, that clearer parts of the text of Scripture bear witness to the meaning of less clear parts. And in fact, I'll just, I'll just get to that. Uh, I'll just get to that right now and read it verbatim uh, for you. Um, all things in Scripture, and this is Article 7 of Chapter 1, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to the sufficient understanding of them. So basically, that's the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Um, But then in in Article 9, remember, so in in Article 7, it says, there are some things that are not plain in and of themselves, right? There are some things that are perhaps obscure to us, difficult for us to understand in our frailty and so on. So in Article 9, it says, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more, more clearly. And this would be an example of the analogy of Scripture, the analogia scripturae. Um, and what biblicism typically tends to do, I'm not saying that it has to, but it, it seems like many expressions of it tend to do this, is it, will, it, is it will forbid the Bible interpreter from going outside of the immediate text in, in question to other parts in Scripture, uh, parallel texts, uh, observing, observing the, the intertextuality throughout the whole canon of Scripture in order to uh, be informed or become more informed about any one given area. And, and that's just not right. We know that we know if we if we if we look at scripture as a whole and even if we look at how the apostles interpret scripture what we find quite quite clearly and readily is that they they interpret scripture with scripture um, they're not saying well we have to interpret this passage or that passage in the old old testament according to its own terms exclusively uh, yes the near context needs to be observed marked and understood uh, but also, it's the case that Scripture, rem- more remote parts of Scripture, are going to to inform uh, that area of 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 text in question. It also typically forbids the interpretation of Scripture in light of the whole of the Christian faith. So, for example, we have as Christians a body of doctrine that we confess to be true, and and basically, what the biblicist would do is it would say, put all of that aside. <laughs> 
when you come to the text of Scripture. In other words, you, you, you cannot bring anything that you confess to be true at present in terms of the Christian faith. You can't bring any of that with you to the text of Scripture, and you have to interpret Scripture uh, somewhat as if you were like a tabula rasa or a blank slate. Um, and and this goes along with really uh, this whole no creed but the Bible uh, thing where uh, you better not bring the assumptions, for example, if your assumptions line up with the Nicene Creed, you better not bring those assumptions with you to the text of Scripture. You have to, you have to compartmentalize all of that and set it aside and, and, and do your scriptural research and, and interpretation that way, which, number one, is impossible to do. It's really impossible to get rid of all of your pre-commitments and your presuppositions in the project of biblical interpretation. But also what that is, is another expression of number one, rejecting doctrinal accountability. It's basically saying, don't take that accountability with you. You are not accountable to what you already confess and profess to be the case when you come to the text of Scripture. You have to forget about all of that and really start anew when you come to any particular passage. So how, how, how this usually works out for the anthropomorphites who read all of the analogical metaphorical language about God having arms and, and nostrils and, and eyes and so on, they read that univocally and literally, and they they imposed all of that upon the divine essence. In other words, they said God has an actual body. Uh, God has arms and legs and nostrils and eyes and so on. And no, they're not talking about the incarnation of the Son. They're talking about God as he is in eternity, uh, apart from creation. God has a body, right? And, and that's, that's where they came. Uh, that's where they... Uh, that's that's the conclusion that they came to, reading all of these analogical metaphorical expressions in Scripture. Um, and, but what they do is they reached that conclusion because they they set aside apparently set aside other pre-commitments, doctrinal pre-commitments. For example, that God is one, which is confessed in Deuteronomy six four. They couldn't take the confession of Israel in Deuteronomy six four carry that with them into other texts of Scripture, and, and they, they, they could not read those metaphorical expressions in light of other doctrinal pre-commitments, for example, the unity of the divine essence taught in Deuteronomy 6.4. They had to set that aside, and they had to interpret those metaphorical expressions without any consideration of anything else that comes from other parts of, of, of Scripture. And they're left with the anthropomorphite heresy. Um, you know, we have to be able to take ontological data from the scriptures, scriptures that give us substantive statements about who God is. Um, we have to be able to take those with us as we interpret other parts of scripture. This is the whole uh, warp and woof of Article Nine and, and Chapter One of Chapter One of of the Second London Confession that. Really, uh, those when there's any question as to what this this or that text means, it needs to be informed by other parts of Scripture, right? Uh, the analogy of Scripture, uh, the analogy of faith. So the third reason biblicism is bad, the third reason biblicism is undesirable and very dangerous, is because it tends to view Scripture as a disordered compendium of various sometimes unrelated texts, and that's that's manifest in this whole idea that well, you can't search other parts of Scripture to come to a conclusion concerning 
this particular part of Scripture, and you you better by no means bring your doctrinal pre-commitments with you to uh, biblical interpretation. Number four, reason number four why biblicism is bad. Biblicism often does not have a well-defined understanding of the purpose of Scripture, or at least it doesn't consistently uh, read Scripture uh, with that with that defined purpose in mind, um, and, and so when we when we think about scripture and we're and we're interpreting scripture, we're trying to understand scripture. We have to at minimum ask the question: What is God's goal here? What and and I'm not just talking about in any one particular text, but what is God's goal in giving us 66 inspired books? What is God's goal in that? What is He using that to accomplish? Right? What's the purpose? What's the final cause of Scripture? When we say Scripture is sufficient, we need to ask, what is what is it sufficient in? Or what is Scripture sufficient for? Right? What what is what is Scripture sufficient for? There's a good answer in uh, in chapter one, article one of of the Second London Confession. It says Scripture is sufficient. Or the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of, and then it gives a definition. It gives it specifies what Scripture is sufficient for, all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. All right, all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Um, there are those who take Scripture as a document that is purposed to inform their diet, their dietary needs, and so on and so forth. Um, there are those who, 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 who tell us Scripture really should be brought to bear on, uh, you know, uh, how you do finances and things like that. And I'm talk- not just talking principle, like stewardship, I'm talking about in particular, this is how you need to do finances, or this is how you need to, uh, to, to understand your dietary needs and so on. I'm not just talking about Scripture principles that inform our ethics in relation to those things. I'm saying that there are those who try to derive actual dietary formulas and financial formulas from Scripture that go beyond the scope of what Scripture was actually intended for, um, which is saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Um, Scripture itself gives us purpose statements. In different places, it, it does this. Uh, but one purpose statement comes to us in, uh, in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 through 17, which says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? It's advantageous or useful for what? Doctrine, articles of the faith, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? So there, there's a definition. We have to ask ourselves, well, well, what is Scripture for, right? Uh, and then we have to answer that question. We have to answer that question accurately. Uh, is the purpose of Scripture to usurp or give us a whole different version of the natural sciences or of philosophy, uh, does Scripture, in other words, usurp and and, and kind of blur together uh, all of the sciences, right? It, does it destroy the distinction between the sciences or the the tree of sciences, right? Is uh, you know some would say, well, everything is theological, by which 
they might mean that everything has relation to God, which is true, or they might mean that really um, scripture and theology really should uh, should replace uh, the natural sciences. Uh, scripture and theology should replace natural uh, philosophy and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and it just kind of blurs everything, the lines and distinctions that are very important for us to, to maintain. And it overrealizes the sufficiency and the purpose of Scripture, which is just as abusive to Scripture as an under-realization of what Scripture is sufficient for, right? So we don't want to abuse the text of Scripture. We want to situate Scripture according to Scripture's own terms, all right? Um, so the fourth reason biblicism is bad is that it, obvious, it, it oftentimes does not have a well-defined understanding of the purpose of Scripture as a whole. The fifth reason biblicism is bad is that biblicism tends not to consider Scripture in relation to God, the world, or the piety of the reader and the importance thereof. Let me explain what I mean by this. Oftentimes when people jump into the interpretive task, interpreting and understanding scripture, they don't consider scripture in light of what they know about God. So given the existence of God, what implications does he have on the text? Uh, there, are, there, there are certain ways the text is not going to be and certain ways the text is going to be given the existence of God and given the existence of the God revealed to us through both nature and scripture. Um, and, and, and really what I'm getting at here is uh, maybe an example. One of the first things that we encounter in scripture is creation. And so at, at bare minimum, when you, when you read Genesis 1, you know that God is the creator. That is a pre-commitment. That, that becomes an assumption for everything else that you're going to read in the text of Scripture. Um, and, and you're going to have to consider God as creator as you read the rest of Scripture. And, and, and what that means at the most basic level is that there's a creator-creature distinction because God is not his creation. He, he created creation, um, and that means at bare minimum, that God is not his creation. He is the creator of it, right? And so that gives us a doctrine of the creator-creature distinction. That's going to carry on through the rest of your biblical interpretation. Um, that's going to that's gonna keep us from interpreting anything in Scripture as being pantheistic, panentheistic, and so on. And so uh, there's, there's something of the doctrine of God assumed in all of our biblical interpretation. It's been said that Theology proper or the doctrine of God is a distributive doctrine or a distributed doctrine. That means that theology proper needs to be distributed in all of our theology. In all of our theology, we must consider who God is. We must see all things in our theologizing as being related to this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Another example would be, let's say, let's say the person who's never read the Bible before and is getting ready to read the Bible. And that person assumes that this Bible has been inspired by God. It's been, it's been, it's been authored ultimately by God. Well, in that person's mind, there's already an idea of who God is, right? They, we know from Romans 1, 18 through 21, that they've perceived God through the things that have been made. And so, 
there's already this idea of who God is, and there's this assumption of who God is as they come to the text of Scripture. At bare minimum, it is that this God is that beyond uh, that which is beyond all things, right? And transcendent of all things. Uh, this God has the final say in my life. This God, what, what this God has to say in his holy word means something because this is God, the creator of all things, the first cause, the unmoved mover, and so on and so forth. So there's these assumptions that have to be brought to the text and are inevitably brought to the text. Even the biblicist brings these assumptions to the text. The problem is that the biblicist inconsistently says they do not, at least sometimes. So given the existence of God, what implications does he have on the text? And that would bring us into considerations of the extent to which natural revelation and natural theology must be assumed and understood in our approach to the text and so on. Given the nature of the world, the way the world is and the way in which God has created the world to function, which of course we can know to some extent apart from the scriptures, logic, language, human knowledge, which is sometimes called epistemology or the theory of cognition, what the world reveals concerning God and his law and so forth. In light of those things, how should we approach the text of Scripture, right? And, and oftentimes, oftentimes the biblicist wants to scoot that aside and not consider that uh, in relation to their uh, interpretive enterprise. And then the third thing, given the holy nature of Scripture, the fact that it comes from a holy God, can it be properly understood by the reader apart from some acquired principle of holiness? Um, and, and really, that's just a fancy way of me asking the question, can, a, can an unholy person know the true sense of Scripture? And I would say no, and I think Scripture would side with that. Um, now, of course, we're not asking, can... Uh, can uh, does it does does a person reading scripture need to be perfectly holy? And the answer, of course, is no. But what what I'm saying is, what I'm asking is, does there need to be a principle of holiness instilled in the person reading scripture before they can derive the true sense? And I think the answer must be yes. And the reason for that is found in First Corinthians two fourteen and elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, if someone does not have spiritually discerning eyes given in regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit, if they don't have the new birth, then how can they see the true sense of Scripture and appropriate the true sense of Scripture appropriately? Um, so, and oftentimes in biblicist circles, scripture is functionally seen as any, as, as, as a document like any other. There are words on the page. It's special because these words are from God. Um, but really it's just like reading any other book. And as long as you have some principles that guide literary science, uh, his, the historical grammatical method, you can find out what's in it. You can know what's in it. And there's little consideration given to the moral character of the reader, which has to be formed and birthed anew in regeneration. All right, so those are the five reasons that I've come up with for why biblicism is bad. Now, what I don't want to be heard as saying is that this applies to every single individual biblicist. Uh, 
I don't think that's the case. I'm going off of a principle that usually characterizes biblicists, which is uh, the downplaying of any sort of other authorities uh, or, or, or forms of accountability in the biblical, hermeneutical, and interpretive picture. So, biblicism generally rejects doctrinal accountability. That's number one. Number two, biblicism transfers the sufficiency of Scripture to the reader of Scripture. That's number two. Number three, biblicism tends to view Scripture as a disordered compendium of various sometimes unrelated texts. Number four, biblicism often does not have a well-defined understanding of the purpose of Scripture as a whole. And number five, biblicism tends not to consider Scripture in relation to God, the world, or the piety or the holiness of the reader. Guys, I hope this was helpful. Um, if it was, please consider sharing it. Uh, if not on your social media profile, then with a friend or something. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.